So once again, for those of you that have been part of the church for more than 15 years, those of you that were praying for this location, praying for this church, those of you that during that season gave radically and sacrificially for us to be here and build this place and allow a lot of people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and for those of you that continue to support and pray for the church, uh, I want to say thank you. I mean, we had no idea what the Lord was going to do and what his plans were when we moved here. But I could tell you that everything that the Lord has done in this place in the last 15 years is just pure evidences of his grace. And we have to remember that. And also, as an exhortation to you to say, let's keep moving forward, asking the Lord to do wonderful things in our midst. Because at the end of the day, what makes this beautiful place is not just the building. It's the people inside that building. Amen? Let's pray. Our beautiful Savior, we are grateful that we get to remember, celebrate, and see how beautiful and faithful you have been. 97 years ago, when WBC started, had no idea that this is where we were going to be today. And yet... For 97 years, you have done this beautiful, wonderful thing. And we are grateful, Lord, that for the last 15 years, you have allowed us to be in the community of West Chicago, opening our doors to many kinds of people from different backgrounds, with different stories, different struggles. We are grateful, Lord, that the future of this church does not rest in the capacity or charisma or gifts or abilities of any leader, of group of leaders, but the success of this church in the future rests in one thing and one thing alone, that you are faithful. And I pray, Lord, that as a church we continue to have that in mind. Now I pray that by the power of your Spirit you prepare our hearts for the preaching of your word. We ask for the illumination of the Spirit for our minds, the transformation of the Spirit uh, in our affections, and the influence of the Spirit over our wills to respond to whatever you're calling us to be and do. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus and the churches. All right, good morning, familia. My name is Johnny Cash, for those of you who don't know me. Somebody called me Johnny Cash this morning because, you know, this thing. I know that the younger generation is, Johnny, what? Yeah, talk to your parents. Um, today we're taking a pause on, uh, on our series on the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to do a two-week series called Extravagant. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the concept. I'm assuming you are. But extravagant could be seen as something positive or something negative, Right? From a negative perspective, an extravagant person is someone that lacks self-control, uh, is willing to spend it all and waste it all and has no regrets and he doesn't care what he or she does as long as he accomplishes whatever he wants to accomplish. That would be from a negative perspective. But from a positive perspective, an extravagant person is someone that is willing to spend it all, to give it all, to sacrifice all, but not because of selfish reasons, but because he or she has found something so beautiful, so amazing, so perfect, so fulfilling, so transcendent, that giving it all for that is worth it. And I want to invite you to see that as Christians, 
that, kind, that has to be our behavior. Actually, I think that the word extravagant is a good word for what it means to be a Christian. Because as Christians, we have found something so beautiful, so amazing, so powerful, so gigantically perfect that we should be willing to give it all. Because for us, God is that, God's church is that, and God's mission is that. So today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about what it means to be extravagant people. Living as a community because we are an extravagant church. And doing it because we have an extravagant God. Extravagant people. Being part of an extravagant church. Because we have an extravagant God. To talk about that, we're going to look into Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of reverence. If you have your Bible, once again, go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to read all the way to verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the ones in front of you, or we're going to put the verses on the screen for those of you that are not as holy just yet. Just kidding. No, I'm not. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Verse 2. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Verse 3, for by grace given uh, me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance, in accordance with the faith God has, di has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. In your gift, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in according to your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. You may take a seat. Why would I say that the, that the word extravagant is a good name to talk about Christians, point number one. Paul, the writer of this letter, right at the beginning of the text, gives us a description of what it means to be a Christian, which is where I get the word extravagant from. Look at what Paul calls the church to be or to do. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's one of those verses that has so much information in it that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 12 sermons 
Just in those sentences. It's the same reason when I'm about to preach three hours just in those sentences. Every single one of those phrases, four different phrases, are so important and, that, and they cannot be separated from each other. Paul says that to be the church and to be a believer is someone that is willing, willingly offer their bodies. Now, if you don't know what that means, that simply means this, that to be a Christian is someone that has no reservations and no restrictions, but is willing to give him or herself completely to God. Completely to God. That's why I think that to be a Christian is, is to be an extravagant. Is to give it all, is to waste it all, is to surrender all to God. Notice that Paul doesn't say that a Christian is someone that gives fragments to God. Notice that he doesn't say that a Christian is someone that gives the leftovers to God. Notice that he doesn't say that a Christian is someone that gives gradually to God. No, no, no. Paul says that to be a believer, to be a Christian, to be the church, is someone that gives him or herself completely, radically to God. So the question is, how do we do that? Well, this is where the second phrase comes in. We do that by living lives of living sacrifice. Meaning that the believer not only understands that the only way we could give ourselves completely to God is by being willing to kill ourselves, to kill everything that is sinful in us, to deny ourselves for the sake of something bigger. The Christian knows that to be a Christian means that we exercise Time and time again, self-denial instead of self-gratification. Notice what Paul says. To be a believer is someone that gives, offers themselves completely to God by living sacrificial lives. Intentionally living sacrificial lives. I want you to see that Paul is not saying that this happens once in a lifetime. This is something that happens all the time, every day, every week, every month, every year. This is what it means to be a Christian. So the question we have to ask then is, how or why would we practice self-denial? Well, this is where the third phrase comes in. And Paul says that the only way we can offer ourselves um, and live sacrificially is because we understand that we are holy to God. We understand that when we became Christians, God saved us from something for something. We have been set apart. We belong to him and his purposes. We don't live lives of self-satisfaction or self-gratification. We live for something bigger and better than ourselves. So the question is, what is that bigger or better than ourselves? And this is where the fourth phrase comes in. Paul says that the only way we offer ourselves, offer our bodies as living sacrifice, holy to God, we do it because we want to bring, we want to be pleasure to God. Please be pleasing to God. See, the, the believer truly believes that the only way we find true happiness and true fulfillment and true joy is really by living by something much bigger than ourselves. To live for the glory of God and to bring pleasure to him. 
That's why Christianity is so radically different to what the culture proposes. This is why the Christian lives completely different to the way the modern people live. See, we are conditioned by nature because of our society to live in a way that we think that we are the center of the universe and that we find happiness by putting ourselves in the middle of everything. Isn't that the reason why we buy the things we buy? Isn't isn't that the message that we hear time and time again? See, part of the reason why being a Christian is difficult at times is because the message we hear all the time is, you are the center of the universe. Please yourself. Everything is created for you. So Mike Green, Mike Green, uh, is a pastor and church planter. He says this, we live in a culture that revolves around consuming. Every TV commercial, every store, every credit card company, every bank, every TV show or movie, every piece of clothing, car or product, every website, every restaurant, every, everything is tailored to fit your desires, needs or personal preference. Everything says you are the most important person in the world. This is why you buy the things you buy. Because you always hear this voice saying, you deserve these shoes. Every time I go to the store, I could almost hear the, the shoes speaking to me. You need me. You're going to look awesome. He says, we are easily infuriated when things don't happen exactly as we want them. By the way, people leave our church when that happens. We exist in a place that implicitly says, we are here to serve you and meet your every whim and desire. Let us take care of you. You know, part of my greetings every Sunday when I welcome the people, I say to the new people, we are here to love you and serve you in any way we can. And now I'm thinking I should probably change that phrase. (laughs) Because even though it's true, I don't want anyone to believe that we are Christians because the church is here to serve us. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Actually, to be a Christian, according to Paul, is to offer our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Actually, Paul is going to argue that that is the most logical thing to do. That to go against it, to think that we got to please ourselves and follow our desires is the most illogical thing we could do. You know where I get that from? From the second part of verse 1. Look at what Paul says. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he says, this is your true and proper worship. You know, the NIV uses these two words, true and proper. But in the original, those two words is actually one word. In the original, it's just one word. It's the word logikos, which means uh, where we get the word logic from. And this is what, basically what Paul is saying. If God is who he says he is, and he is, and if the church is what the church is supposed to be, and it is, and if God's purposes are awesome, and everything that God does is awesome, the most logical, good, perfect thing to do is to live your life as a living sacrifice. And also the opposite or opposite of that is true. The most illogical thing to do is to live for yourself. You know how detrimental 
it is for us to think that life is about ourselves? Listen, even if you are here new to the church and you don't agree with Paul or what I just said, deep down inside, you know that that is true. There is nothing more detrimental than a person that is obsessed with themselves. This is part of the reason why when you see a person that is obsessed with themselves, super egocentric and self-centered, no one sees that person that says, well, that's perfect boyfriend material. No one says that. No one says an egocentric person, selfish person, self-centered person that says, that person should be the leader of our country. At least we shouldn't. In any political party. Nobody would say that to an egocentric person, that should be a leader. Because deep down inside, we know that to have a self-centered, egocentric maniac is never a good thing. The most logical, healthy, good thing to do is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. This is the reason why in verse 2, Paul says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test, pay attention to that, and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is Paul almost saying, if you want to see how good and pleasant and perfect the will of God is, stop living for yourself. Live for him, for something better and bigger. Stop being obsessed with yourself. Be obsessed with him and his plans. If you want to see how good and pleasing and perfect the will of God is, stop being obsessed with yourself. That's a radical thing. That's why... I think that the word extravagant is the best description for what it means to be a Christian. Now, you're going to love this. Because Paul, it seems to be talking to the individual, right? And any of us will hear the message and say, well, yeah, if you're a Christian, yeah, I want to leave that. What is interesting, though, is that from verses 3 to 8, he seems to be changing the topic. So instead of talking, at, uh, for, uh, talking uh, about the individual alone, now he's going to talk about the church and you got to ask the question, wait, what does the first part of Romans chapter 12 has to do with the second part of Romans chapter, uh, from verses 3 to 8? Why is it that Paul is calling us to live as living sacrifices and now he's going to talk about the church? Well, this is going to lead to me, this is going to lead us to the second point, the extravagant church. And I'm going to make the argument that part of the reason why Paul is putting these two things together is because if you really, really want to grow into living, presenting your body as a living sacrifice, if you really want to grow into that, there is no better place for you to put that into practice than in the church of Jesus Christ. Actually, I am convinced that there are two primary places where our Christianity is supposed to be put into practice. First, and foremost, home and church. Listen up. Because if you don't know how to practice your Christianity at home, you will never be able to do it at church. 
And if you don't know how to practice your Christianity at church, nothing says that you're going to be able to leave your Christianity out there. It's simply impossible. So the Lord has been speaking to me a lot about that. He's been talking to me about self-control and the little things that I allowed and things like that. And I'm convinced, for example, give you a perfect example. Put it out there. All right? Took vacation, might as well lose reputation. Who cares? <laughs> I'm an extremely impatient person. And my family reminds me of that all the time. And I lack gentleness when I don't exercise patience. You know what's interesting? Patience is the fruit. That's not even in the notes, people. <laughs> patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And so is gentleness. So this is what the Lord has been speaking to me about. If I don't know how to exercise patience with my daughters and my wife, if I don't know how to be gentle there, I'm never going to be able to exercise patience with you or be gentle to you. I could pretend, but it doesn't mean that I want to. <laughs> Does that make sense? And if I cannot do it within the body of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to do it out there. You guys still with me? So please pray for me. <laughs> and for you. Because that also applies for you. So I want to start by giving you a, descri a description, I think a, a biblical description of what it means to be the church. See, the church is a place where saints and sinners hang around together. But I'm not talking about two different kinds of people. It's not like if you guys are saints and you guys are sinners, you guys are saints, you guys are sinners. You no, 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 no. The sinner is the same saint, and the saint is the same sinner. And I think that part of the reason why Paul is calling us to live as, offer our bodies as living sacrifice within the context of the church is because the church is such a beautiful mess. It is beautiful because we are saints. We have been forgiven and adopted in Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven, uh, declared righteous, and sanctified in Jesus Christ. That's why if you are a believer, you are a saint. But because sin, you still struggle with sin. You're still a sinner. And you know why you're a sinner? Because sometimes you forget that you're a saint. Now, put a bunch of people like that in a single place. What do you expect? So if you're new to the church, this happens to me at least once a week. Someone says, this church is so beautiful. The people here are so beautiful, so kind, so gentle. I never found a church like this, and everything inside of me says, just wait a month. And you would change your mind super fast. Because we forget that the church is a place of saints and sinners at the same time. That's why Paul says that there's no better place. Where you have to learn to offer your bodies as living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God that when you intentionally hang around with sinners that forget that they're, uh, with saints that forget that they're saints. Welcome to the real world, church. You know what's beautiful about this, though? That it's so easy for someone to hear that and says, well, I don't want to be part of that. Or for someone to say, that's why I just, 
show up and disappear. I don't want to be part of that mess. You know what's interesting? Number one, you are the mess to begin with. <laughs> and number two, you have no permission to do that. Because Paul is going to say that in this beautiful mess, we belong to one another. Verse 5. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the other members. Saint sinners belong to one another. I'm going to put it super radical. As much as the world tells you that you belong to yourself, God says that you do not belong to yourself. You don't have the rights over your own body. You don't get to do whatever you want. If you are a believer, we belong to God and his church. We belong to one another. You know how counterculture that is? You know how counterculture that is? There's no such a thing as a Christian that says, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, but I don't like that church. There's no such a Christian like that in the Bible. Because we belong to God and his church. Oh, I love the God of the Bible, how much I hate the church. What Bible are you reading? We belong to one another. As much as we keep forgetting that we are saints, we belong to one another. I'm praying that in the church, in Witten Bible Church, we don't have ninja Christians. You know what ninja Christians are? The ones that you blink and they're here. And you blink again and they're gone. You don't get to do that. I, 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 listen, I know for a fact that there are people that come to this church because it's larger, because you don't want to be known. And you should be sitting somewhere back there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Up there. <laughs> if you really want to live, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, you got to know that you belong to other Christians. You really do. You can leave that out unless you understand that. And not only you need to understand that, but you also are a saint, a sinner that need other people's gifts. And this is coming from verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, just as much, verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us, each of us, and therefore every single one of us not only have a gift, but every single one of us need the gift of somebody else. See, you have a gift because you're a saint. When the Holy Spirit came into your life and gave you salvation and all these things, with that also he gave you a gift. Every single Christian has a gift. And that gift is not for you. Is not for me. The gift is for the common good, says Corinthians. The only reason why the Lord has given you a gift is because the body needs that gift. Did you know that the gift you have, nobody else has it the way you have it? Because we are all different beings. 
You might have the, the, the gift of teaching, but nobody teaches the way you do because you have a personality the way they designed design you to be. You are different. You are unique. You are not like everybody else. Therefore, even though you have the same gift as somebody else does, your gift, nobody has it like you. And the reason why you are part of this body is because this body needs that gift. Needs it. Just like a body that does not function well, when something is broken or not functioning, the body of Jesus Christ does not function well when you don't use the gift that the Lord gave you for the well-being of the body. Does that make sense? Listen, when I was little, I had a cat. Don't even know why we had a cat, but we had a cat. This happened when I was little. B.C., before Christ. I got to make the disclaimer because of what I'm about to say. One day I'm looking at the cat and I noticed that I have very long whiskers. L let me finish the story. <laughs> Judgmental people. I'm looking at the cat and I said, those whiskers don't make any sense. So I shaved them off. <laughs> Let me finish this story. <laughs> I did not know that there was a purpose for those whiskers. So now you have that cat. <laughs> I'm sure that cat was cussing at me in cat language because that was not a Christian cat. So I know for sure that was cussing at me. But this is what happened to me that day. Just because I thought that they didn't make any sense didn't mean that it didn't make any sense. There was a purpose for the whiskers to be there. I ruined a cat because of my ignorance. <laughs> I want to make the argument that there are Christians here that think of gifts like if those were the whiskers. That assume that gifts are good to have, but not that important. And what Paul says, if you really want to offer your body as a living sacrifice, your gifts are extremely important. Listen up. Not only your gifts are extremely important, but the gifts of the body are, should be extremely important to you. Because you need them. Because not only you are a saint with a gift, but you are a sinner in needs of the gifts of the other people. Nobody has it all together, people. Nobody has all the gifts. Only Jesus has all the gifts. Therefore, as long as we continue to be sinners, you're always going to need what the rest of the body has. By design, we are interdependent. Isn't that crazy? Here we're thinking that we don't need anybody else and Paul says, not like that. You need what other people have. 
And this body needs the gifts that you have. I find that amazing. During my vacation time, I've been thinking and reading a lot about different generations. Because one of the things that I love about the church is not that, that just that we have all different kinds of people from different backgrounds and different stories and all these things. But, but, but because the Lord has made of us this um, multi-generational church. Did you know that God's, by God's design, even, even every generation brings something to the table that other generations may not have. Even, even from that perspective, I find that so amazing. So, for example, how many guys are, are uh, boomer, boom, part of the boomer generation? Raise your hand. So hear me out. Whatever the Lord gave you, this church needs. How many of you guys are generation X? Did you guys know that you guys are the best generation in the world? And I'm saying that because I'm part of that generation. <laughs> that is not true. But every generation, how many of you guys are millennials? Raise your hand. I'll be praying for you. Listen up. <laughs> every generation has something to contribute to the kingdom. Every generation plays a role in the kingdom. Your gifts are needed and your gifts are important. And unless you put into practice those things and receive the grace of other people, you are not going to be able to live offering your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And you won't be able to see that the will of God is good, pleasant, and perfect. That's why the church is so important. Because it is such a beautiful mess. Now, I think that in this church there's a bunch of beautiful people like that. But instead of me sharing with you some of those stories, I want to invite someone to the front that I have seen and heard living that out. So I'm going to invite you to welcome to the front Anne Garnett really quick for me. So, um, Anne has been part of the church for a long time, so I'm assuming that a lot of people here know you, but maybe some others don't, so can you tell us a little bit about you, your sure. family, and all that stuff? Sure. So, my name is Anne Garnett, and my husband Grant and I have been part of this church. It's going to be 36 years in August, so I act a lot younger than I am. That would be the truth. <laughs> and we raised our four kids here. All of them are married, and they're all engaged in their local church where they live, and this is the place where Grant and I have done ministry for 36 years. It's where we've connected with people. Our deepest, most precious friendships are here. And that's been as a result of serving alongside of people. Now, part of the reason why I want to invite Anne to come and share a little bit of her story and testimony is because you are wired in a very unique way. So when I talk about giftings and being unique, you are like that. Um, and by God's grace, you have served in so many different areas. So share with the church a little bit of some of the 20,000 things you've done here. <laughs> okay, well, Grant and I both have had the privilege of serving in leadership. Grant's been able to be an elder a couple of times. He's led and shepherded adult communities. Um, I've had the privilege of being on the global executive team that serves missions, and then also in the core leadership team for women's Bible study. But if I had to really think about the most precious times of serving, they're the 
what seem like more the everyday type things. The hosting or teaching at a neighborhood Bible club for decades, or it's being a small group leader with different women over the years in place for you, or it's being a member of a GO team and going to encourage one of our missionaries on the field. So it was in those kind of things, even the one-offs, you know, the times where you just agree to come on a Saturday morning and help with, you know, the building a Christmas memory because somebody did that when our kids were little. So now we're doing that, we're trying to pay that back because someone did it so we could come. So. Yeah, and we do, we are kind of a funny family because I have created a Wheaton Bible Church bucket list. And so those are the things that you have to do if you're a member at Wheaton Bible Church. So like, we used to have to serve out in the parking lot when it was like 20 below, so did that. Went on a junior high mission trip as an adult leader, did that. But I'm not encouraging everyone to do that, so. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I've heard you talk about this before in some of our conversations and things that I've heard you in teachings and things like that. But you do have a very high view of the church. So I, I, from that perspective, you do understand when Paul talks about the importance of the church. So how about if you share with us a little bit of that? Well, I didn't know that Hannibal was going to be teaching out of Romans 12 this morning. And when I was, he and I had exchanged some texts about the questions today. And I really focused in on Ephesians 2 and how God created every single one of us with works that only we can do. We are his workmanship. He wants each one of us to do those works in a local community, in a local body, to benefit everyone there. And what's the most beautiful thing of that to me is that we are the ones who receive the most joy from that. That we're the ones who grow so much in our faith through that. And then the other thing that I thought about is that when I, when I serve, I'm serving out of my deep gratitude for all that God has done for me. Not to earn his favor, but because he's blessed me with his favor. And so then I serve as a gratitude. Like we talk about um, giving is an act of worship. So is serving. Serving is an act of worship. Yeah. Um, just to wrap it up here, if, if, you had, if I give you just a minute to encourage the church and exhort the church, what would you say to them? Okay, what I would say to you is I would remind you, if you were here, a few years ago, Ed Stetzer was preaching during the um, Missions Fest, and he used at that time an expression that he said, put your yes on the table and let God place it on the map. And what I would t challenge you today, listening to Hannibal's message, is put your yes on the table to serve at this church and allow God to help you find the place on the map to put that here at Wheaton Bible Church. Amen. Thank you, Ann. The church is a community of saints, sinners that belong to one another and need each other's gifts. That's what it means to be an extravagant church. So the question we got to answer is, how do we turn into people like that? See, if there's one thing that, about, that I learned about the church, is that because we are both saints and sinners, there's so many beautiful moments in the church, and yet... There are so many complicated moments in the church. Therefore, how do we make it? And actually, Anne talked a little bit about this. This is point number three. Part of the reason why we know that we could do this is because we have an extravagant God. See, Paul is going to say, he's going to give us here both the power and the motivation to be able to live this out. The power and the motivation to be able to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And we find that right at the beginning of verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's where the power comes from. 
That's where the motivation comes from. Is to know that a believer is a saint because has received the mercy of God. And the word therefore there is very important because he's making a connection between the imperative that Paul just gave us and what Paul says prior to uh, Romans chapter 12. So if you don't know what the mercy of God is, let me walk you through it. See, it was because of the mercy of God that we are here today. Because Romans chapter 1 says that we deserve the wrath of God. Why? Because we had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we have worshipped and served the created, created things rather than the creator. If it wasn't because of the wrath of God, we would be still stuck in Romans chapter 2. That says that we were, um, that we were stubborn in our hearts. And we did not want to repent. Even though we knew that we were wrong. Because our conscience told us. If it wasn't because of the mercy of God. We will be still stuck in Romans chapter 3. Because Romans chapter 3 says that there's no one righteous. Not even one. No one was looking and seeking for God. Including you and I. But it was because of the mercy of God that we got Romans chapter 4. That God found a way to forgive our sins and to justify us by faith. It is because of the mercy of God that we got Romans chapter 5. Because in Romans chapter 5 we see that we can actually be justified by faith when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. In the one that was fully, truly righteous and yet went to the cross to take the wrath we deserved. The one that went to the cross not only to die for our sins, but to kill the stubborn heart in our hearts. It was because of the mercy of God that we got Romans chapter 6. That because now we are righteous in Jesus. We are no longer dead to sin, but alive in Jesus. And it was because of the mercy of God that even though we struggle like Romans chapter 7 says... That even though we still struggle with our sin, we can't remember that, praise God, Jesus already died. And it was because of the mercy of God that we finally land in, in Romans chapter 8. Where we remember that because we have been forgiven and justified in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And it is because of the mercy of God that we could read the whole chapter of Romans chapter 8. And right at the end, he tells you that not only you have been forgiven, but that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Because we can be convinced, says the Bible, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any power, neither high nor depth, or anything else in creation can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's the mercy of God. Paul says, because of that, therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And you will see that the will of God is good, pleasant, and perfect. See, to be honest, I don't understand why is it that we still struggle becoming extravagant people and being part 
of an extravagant church. When we have such an extravagant God, he did not hold anything back. The question is why? Because he found something worthy. The church. You. How about if we leave that out? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, as we prepare our hearts to respond in adoration, I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you bring to mind and to our hearts the magnitude, the power, and the beauty of the mercy of God. There is no other power, there is no other motivation that will move us to want to offer our bodies as living sacrifice. It's only when we truly grasp, understand, believe, and embrace the magnitude of your of your extravagant love. Lord, you gave it all. You surrendered, you surrendered it all. You held nothing back. You became a human being. You lived in a broken world. You suffered, struggled, was rejected, and yet went to the cross to die for the very people that caused you pain. We were those people. And now we're here. All because of your mercy. Please, Lord, help us see it. Embrace it. Believe it. To the point that we become extravagant people. Being part of an extravagant church. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus. And the church says...